Uh, how can you say there is only one way to God? That's one of the most common objections to Christianity today in our society, is how could we be so narrow to say that, that Jesus is the only way? And so we wanted to simply have some conversation about that and think through how do we as Christians think about that, talk about that. If you have that question yourself, this would be a great uh, thing to come to. So we're going to have some food and just talk about some of those uh, objections there. And again, this came out of, from a survey a few months ago. Where we just wanted to know what are some of the things that would be helpful for, for the people of the church to be talking about. And, and this was kind of top of the list, was just common objections that are raised to Christianity. And then how can we think through and respond? So we're going to do just that. Hope you'll come out and stay for lunch next week. Uh, but today, let's, uh, let's pray together one more time before we jump into the Word. Father, thank you for a chance to gather and to just be here as a church family, to sing, to pray to you, and now to look into your word. Lord, we pray for your help. Help us uh, understand what we read. Would you teach us? Would you uh, convict us and challenge us and encourage us and comfort us and just do your work in our hearts by your spirit? Uh, we love you, Lord, and we give you this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, go ahead and open up with me to Exodus chapter 5, verse 10 is where we're going to be picking up from last week where we left off in verse 9. So if you need a Bible, uh, that's okay. There are some on the seats in front of you, or if you have, again, a phone, a tablet, some kind of device where you could follow along, that'd be great because we're actually not going to have the words on the screen this morning, and so you'll have to have a hard copy of some kind to follow along. So Exodus 5 Verse 10 is where we're going to be starting. Uh, if we pay attention, we can learn a lot from other people. And I know we've all experienced this. If you pay attention and take notice of other people, you can learn a lot. Sometimes you learn by watching people do things well, by seeing people set a positive example and modeling virtuous behavior, modeling great character and responding well in certain situations. But sometimes we learn kind of in the opposite way where we watch people do things not so well and we learn what not to do by their example when they don't handle life or certain situations particularly well. I grew up with an older brother and so I have plenty of examples of both, and maybe you guys can relate to watching siblings or friends navigate through life, and sometimes there are good things, and sometimes there are not so good things that you learn from them. For my brother's sake, I'll keep the details private, but again, you can, you can imagine. And it's interesting because the Bible often works the same way. We can learn a lot from the Bible by looking at these uh, brothers and sisters of ours, these characters in the Bible that show us great positive examples of faith and courage and trusting God and boldness and all kinds of different situations. But we also look to the Bible and we see a lot of examples of what not to do when people don't handle situations particularly well, when people are quite foolish, when they don't trust God and get themselves in all kinds of trouble. We can learn from them too. And that's actually what this morning is going to show us in Exodus chapter 5. We're going to see some examples of what not to do, specifically what not to do when things get hard, when life gets difficult. 
If you remember at the end of uh, our time last week, we saw that for the people of God living in slavery in Egypt, things were going to get worse before they got better. Pharaoh was going to get more brutal, more harsh towards them. Life was about to get hard. And we're going to see this morning how they respond. And we're going to, again, see some examples of what not to do when life gets hard. So let's take a look at the text together. I'll show you what I mean. Verse 10 of chapter 5. I'll read it for us. It says, Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? So again, last week we saw this showdown between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh where they come to Pharaoh and say, hey, God says, let my people go. The rescue plan is rolling out, but we see that things do not go well. And after that first encounter, things get worse. Pharaoh makes life harder for the people. See, it appears that as slaves, part of their job or their work was to make bricks. This was actually a pretty important industry in ancient Egypt was brick making. And so Pharaoh tells his cronies that they are no longer to give straw to the Hebrews in order that they can make their bricks with it. Straw was a binding agent that was used in bricks. And so without straw, when you put these bricks together, they would be much more likely to crumble, to break apart. And so without straw, brick making was very difficult, if not impossible. And so, verse 12 says what? The people then had to go and try and find their own straw somehow to still get the job done, but it wasn't like they had just a bunch of access to excess straw hanging around, and so they had to, you know, squam, uh, squabble, squander, run, out, run around looking for straw, and they found some stubble, it seems, like leftover in the fields. Maybe after all the good straw was taken and harvested and used, they had to find whatever there was left over to put into these bricks to try and meet their quotas. But you can see that they were getting beaten because they weren't getting the job done. And there's no way that they realistically could keep up with their production quotas and levels now that they don't have straw provided for them. So the people of God are in slavery and now they're working harder, working longer hours, getting less done. And it's not like things were particularly easy for them beforehand, right? They were slaves in Egypt, working long hours in the hot sun, rigorous manual labor. It's not like anyone was nearby with a lemonade stand helping them out, right? Refreshing them. They were tired. They were weary, and now they're working harder, and now they're getting beaten. I mean, things have gone from bad to worse. Ever since Moses initiated this whole little rescue plan here, things have gotten worse before they've gotten any better. And so let's see how the people respond in verse 15. It says, Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. 
Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, and yet we're told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are. Lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. So the Israelite overseers, the slaves that have some level of responsibility over the rest of the people, go and they appeal to Pharaoh. They go before Pharaoh and they say, hey, this isn't fair. This doesn't make sense. How do you expect us to keep up with our quotas when you're not giving us any straw? Which seems like maybe a reasonable thing to do for the Israelite people, for the overseers, to go and talk to Pharaoh about this issue. But I want us to look a little closer and see that there's actually kind of a problem with what they're doing. See, the word in verse 15 for appeal, it says they appealed to Pharaoh. The word that's used there is actually more literally to cry out. They cried out to Pharaoh. That's an important detail because we've seen that word before. Earlier in the book of Exodus, in chapter 3, actually verse 7 and verse 9 of chapter 3, it says that the people of Israel are crying out to God. God hears their cries. They're crying out to him. And now, now, same word, they're crying out to Pharaoh. They're looking to Pharaoh to fix the problem. Now, maybe you're just saying, well, they're just a whiny bunch. They're crying out to whoever's going to listen. This isn't that important of a detail, Pastor Matt. But maybe, maybe there is something here. There's more to this truth. More than just a, a labor dispute here going on. Right, there's nothing wrong with wanting better conditions at work. There's nothing wrong with addressing injustice and talking to your boss about things that aren't going well. But I think there's more to this here in the hearts of the people. They're crying out to Pharaoh. They're not crying out to God anymore. It doesn't tell us they're crying out to God. They're looking to Pharaoh. And then three times in verses 15 to 16, how do they identify themselves before Pharaoh? They say, we are your servants. We are your servants. We are your servants. They're trying to buddy up to Pharaoh, trying to show their allegiance to him. And so it seems like there's some shift or at least this tension in their hearts between belonging to the Lord and crying out to the Lord, but now they're crying out to Pharaoh and they're buddying up to Pharaoh, hoping that he's going to fix the problem. And maybe they're saying to themselves, you know what? We tried praying. We tried crying out to God. That's been our strategy so far, but look, it's not working. Things are only getting worse. God hasn't stepped in. And so, what, what do you expect us to do? The pain is too real, so we're going we're gonna to have to look elsewhere. We're going to have to see what else can help us ease the pain in our time of need because God doesn't seem to be moving things along. And so they're looking elsewhere. And the irony here, the irony in the text is that they're looking for the solution in the same place as the problem. Right? Pharaoh's the problem. Pharaoh's the one making life 
hard for them. He's causing all these issues. He's the problem. And yet they're going to him hoping that he will be the solution. Pharaoh got them into this mess, and they're like, well, maybe Pharaoh can get us out. They're looking for Pharaoh to do what only God can do. And you know, we, we do this today. We do the same thing today. We just don't call it Pharaoh. We don't cry out to Pharaoh, but we look for the solutions to our problems in the same place as our problems. That's often the, the nature of addiction, right? Looking for the solution to your problem in the same place as the problem. And so we're often addicted to food or to seeking approval or to sex or to social media or loneliness or anger. And we think in our pain and in our shame and feeling so broken, looking for something to fix it, we look to what to fix it? More food or more sex or more social media or maybe I just get angry more. That's going to fix it. I feel like I do this with, with social media. Sometimes I'll, I'll scroll, th scroll through social media and I'll just get frustrated by like a dozen different things. A dozen different things will, will, will bother me or frustrate me or I feel like I have to respond to. And afterwards, sometimes you, know, you get off using social media and you're like, I don't even know why I'm angry. I'm just like upset about something. And then in my frustration, I have some downtime. I'm like, what should I do? What's, what's going to help me feel better? And I get back on social media and start scrolling. It's like, I'm looking for the solution in the same place as the problem. And that doesn't make any sense. This happens a lot today, too, in our kind of uh, self-help culture. What we tell ourselves or tell other people is that, hey, the solution, the answer to your problems is within you. And so you have these issues in your heart, these issues in your life. How are you going to fix them? Well... Look within. You're the answer to your problem. And so look within your own heart. Look to yourself. But the only problem with that is, again, you're the problem. <laughs> We're the problem. And so if we look within our hearts, that's where the problems are coming from. And so that's not where the solution is going to be. And that, if you think about it, is at the, at the very core of the gospel message is that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's at the heart of our faith, is that our help and what we need does not come from within. It comes from the Lord, right? Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. The gospel tells us that God does for us what we could not do for ourselves. God heals us where we couldn't heal ourselves. We were lost, we were broken, we were dead in our sin, and Jesus came, and he saved us, and he forgave us, and he welcomed us home, and he healed us. That's the heart of the gospel. God does for us what we could not do for ourselves. So we see with the people of God living in slavery in the book of Exodus and ancient Egypt, we can learn from them what, what not to do when things get hard in the first First example, we can't look for the solutions in the same place as the problems. We can't look to Pharaoh or to ourselves to do what only God can do. 
Now, notice what happens next. There's more. There's more here in how they respond. Verse 19, the Israelite overseers, okay, after their meeting with Pharaoh, they realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. How's that for a nice greeting? May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So they appeal to Pharaoh. They try to look to Pharaoh to fix the situation, and he doesn't. He's like, nope, you still got to make the bricks. Still not giving you any straw. Too bad. Figure it out. And so they leave that meeting, and they're mad. And what do they do? They go and they, they look for someone to blame. Who's responsible for this? And so they go to Aaron and Moses in verse 21. May the Lord look on you and judge you. This is your fault. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh. It actually, more literally in the Hebrew says, you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. You've made us just like a big pile of cabbage or a friend at the gym who doesn't wear deodorant or a pile of dirty diapers. That's what you have made us to Pharaoh and to his servants. You've made us stink. They want to kill us. They want to hurt us now. And so they're starting the blame game. Moses, Aaron, this is your fault. Sure, things weren't good before, but they weren't this bad until you stepped in and improved our situation. Thank you for that, Moses. Again, we're not entirely sure here how the people feel towards God, right? We saw they're not crying out to God. The text doesn't tell us that. So they're like, maybe they're saying to Moses and Aaron, you know what? We're not really sure where God is in all of this right now. We're kind of frustrated about that. But surely God wouldn't make things this bad. So what did you do wrong, Moses? Did you like misread a text somewhere? Did you get the memo wrong? Because God surely wouldn't make things this difficult. It it seems like the, the people just, they're lacking perspective. They're lacking perspective. They don't realize that sometimes you can do exactly what God tells you to do and it can make things worse. Realize that? Sometimes you can do exactly what God tells you to do and things in your life will get harder. Moses is doing exactly what God told him to do. And difficult things are coming his way. But see, what what the people are doing is they're operating under this assumption, this assumption that sometimes we adopt today and we say, hey, here's how things work with God. Very simple equation. Put in good, get out good. That's the equation for life. That's how God works. Put in good, get out good. So if you put in good, you obey You go to church, you tithe, you keep the rules, you put in good, then out into your life, God's going to pour blessing and happiness and success and comfort, right? So put in good, get out good. Very simple equation. And so the people are saying, Moses, that's the equation, man. We all know it. And so we're getting bad, bad outcomes Harder life situations. So what'd you do wrong? 
the equation is very simple. Put in good, get out good. So get out bad must mean you put in bad. Moses, what did you do wrong? Where did you disobey? What did you misunderstand? But the Bible shows us often that the equation is not that simple. It's not as simple as put in good, get out good. Life doesn't always work that way. Life is complex. And again, there are plenty of examples in Scripture where people do exactly what God asked them to do. And things around them actually got more difficult. So what should we not do when things go bad? Well, number two, we should not be quick to blame others like the people do with Moses. We should not be quick to blame others. We should not be quick to assume that we know the equation and how it works exactly, that we have all the information. See, sometimes people do make a real mess of their lives. And people do cause a lot of problems and bring unnecessary challenges into their lives or into your life, maybe. So I'm not saying, hey, just listen to people no matter what. Listen to your leaders no matter what. People are never the problem. No, sometimes people are the problem and people make foolish decisions and leaders make ungodly choices. But we should be humble enough to realize that often there's more to the picture. We don't always have all the information. So we should have enough perspective to say, you know what, I'm going to pause before I throw blame around. Maybe there's more to the equation than I think. But the people, again, they just blame Moses and Aaron. May God look on you and judge you because you've messed things up. Text continues. There's more blame to go around. Don't worry. Moses blames someone else in verse 22. It says, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Verse 23, ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. So the blame game's happening, right? The people come to Moses and Aaron, hey, this is your fault. And then Moses goes to the Lord and says, hey, what's the deal, God? Why have you brought all this trouble? Lord, you haven't rescued your people at all. Things have only gotten worse since you initiated this rescue plan. Now, notice, Moses is not wrong here. Right? Moses, he's not wrong. Ever since things initiated with Pharaoh, things have gotten worse. Things have gotten harder for the people. He's not wrong. And God hasn't rescued them yet, right? So Moses is not wrong. What then is the problem with his response? Where, where does he go wrong then? He goes wrong ultimately in his view of God's timeline. He gets the timeline wrong. He thinks because something hasn't happened yet, it's not going to happen ever. And so he has this short-term thinking. Hey, so far things have gotten bad, so what's the deal, Lord? He's not able to step back with perspective and see the timeline that God is using is different than his. And sometimes it feels like that for us, right? We know what it's like to be in seasons of waiting where our timeline is different from God's, right? Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there now, 
or your timeline looks a certain way and God isn't cooperating? Amber and I have been experiencing this. We, uh, about a year ago, started moving towards becoming uh, approved foster parents. That process started about a year ago. We had wanted to, for some time, adopt or do foster care, but it was really about a year ago that we got serious about it. And it's, it's a pretty long process where there's uh, interviews and training and home visits and applications and paperwork and payment, all kinds of things. It took us, again, almost, almost a year to, to get approved, to jump through all the hoops. And there were points along the way where it felt like, Lord, like, is this ever going to get done? Like, it felt like we were just waiting or waiting for certain paperwork to get back from where we used to live in Colorado to confirm that we weren't criminals there. And there was all this different stuff that we were waiting on. It was hard, and we felt like, Lord, we're pretty sure you've called us to this. We think this is what we're supposed to do, but it's just taking so long, and it was sort of discouraging. But then, then, a few months back, we got approved. We got approved. And so we're like, sweet, we, we passed a, a big marker, uh, jumped over a big hurdle. We are now approved. But guess what we got to do a lot more of? We got to wait. Yeah, so then we had to wait several weeks about a month in total before we got a phone call to have a foster placement and a kid in our home. So in that time, I know a month doesn't sound like a long time, but you know, sometimes when you're in something, the days go by and the weeks go by and you're again like, Lord, is, is this going to happen? We feel you've called us to this and now week after week goes by and Lord, we're, we haven't gotten a call. And we even were starting to wonder like, is, again, is, is this really what you've called us to? Because we've made ourselves available. We've been moving through these hoops and now nothing as so we're waiting and waiting and then we got a call and we got a placement and we have a sweet little guy living with us now that we've really enjoyed but guess what we get to do now that he's in our home we get to wait some more because the future is is uncertain we don't know how long he'll be with us uh, we don't know yeah when he'll go back if he'll go back but he's with us for now and so now what are we doing we're we're waiting some more Saying, all right, Lord, we don't know the timing of all of this. We're just going to trust you each day. But that is hard sometimes. Sometimes we want answers. We want clarity. But God isn't cooperating. <laughs> and so we have to trust him. We have to rest. We have to slow down. Again, maybe you can relate. You're in a season of, of waiting in your life. You're waiting for something to start. You're eager for a new opportunity, a new season of life you're ready to step into. Maybe you're waiting for something to end. You're eager for the, for the relief, for a burden to be lifted, and it's hard. You don't know when it's going to happen. You have to trust the Lord. But I want you to notice in this text what we don't find. Notice what we don't see. Okay, the people are waiting. Things have gotten difficult for them. Let's not sugarcoat it. They're slaves in Egypt. They're being beaten. Things have gotten harder. They're in this season not knowing when relief is going to come. But notice what we don't see in the text. We don't see God saying, Oh no! What am I going to do now? We don't see God saying, Oh man, I did not see this coming. We don't see a verse that, that reads, and the Lord said, I'm in over my head. Time to panic. 
We don't see that verse. It's not there. I was listening to a fantastic podcast this week by Pastor Albert Tate. Uh, Albert Tate, he's a pastor down in LA. He was actually one of the speakers at the conference we went to a few weeks ago down in San Diego. Fantastic preacher and leader. And he has this podcast where he's talking about the concept of the waiting room and how God often puts us in a waiting room, a season of waiting that can be difficult, that can be challenging, where we're waiting for something to happen, and we don't know when it's going to be. And he points out on his podcast, he's teaching from a passage in the New Testament, he points out that Jesus has no problem making you wait. And the same truth applies here. Now, in the Old Testament, God has no problem making you wait. God's okay with making his people wait. And that's sometimes hard for us because we want answers. We want the timeline to move along quickly. We want to see results and action. And sometimes when we don't see progress or things aren't happening the way we think they're supposed to, we start to panic or we get frustrated. But notice from the text, God is not panicking. God's not rushed. God's not saying, oh no, there's not a crisis in heaven. God knows what he's doing. Yes, he has compassion on his people. Yes, he's grieved to see the pain that they're in. Yes, he's moving to rescue them, but he has his timing and his reasons. He's not rushing or panicking or, or speeding things up unnecessarily. And it's, it's so important for us to see this. God's okay with making us wait. He has his timing. And again, sometimes that means waiting in a season where things get worse before they get better. That's what the people are going through in Exodus. Maybe that's what you're going through today. Maybe that's what happened to you when you became a Christian. I don't have a story where you became a Christian and things got harder in your life. Yes, you found hope and joy in Jesus that you wouldn't trade for anything, but things got difficult in a lot of other ways. Maybe you became kind of unpopular at your job because you started noticing some kind of shady dealings or unethical situations that you felt compelled to point out, and so you're all of a sudden not very popular in your office. Or maybe you're following Jesus and the rest of your family isn't, and so as you've made that decision, now there's kind of tension in the home or it's awkward or uncomfortable or there's relational strain in your life because of that decision. Maybe you've had to have more difficult conversation with friends because of this commitment to Jesus. Maybe there's social uh, ostracization. You're outcast now because of your commitment to follow Jesus. And so things haven't gotten better and easier and smoothed out when you started to follow Jesus. Actually, they got difficult. And yes, again, there's joy. Yes, there's hope. Yes, you wouldn't trade life in Christ for anything, but Things are hard, and sometimes in that place we can panic or we can question God or wonder where he is. But notice with the people in Exodus, God's okay with making you wait. God's using those seasons in your life. God's not panicking. And so, knowing what we know about the story of Exodus, rescue's coming, right? We've seen the Prince of Egypt. We've read the next few chapters. Rescue's coming. God's going to step in and lead the people out of slavery. Knowing that, if you were sitting down with Moses here, 
He was wondering, where is God? God, you haven't rescued your people at all. God, why have you made things worse for your people? What is going on? He's frustrated. Ever since this rescue plan of yours started, things have gotten bad. If you were sitting down with Moses and you were having a coffee with him, maybe he's drinking a pumpkin spice latte. It's fall now. Maybe he's having my favorite, a tall, dark roast with a little bit of cream and an espresso shot, if anyone was wondering. Maybe that's what Moses is drinking. I don't know. If you were sitting down with him and that's, the conversation you were having, knowing what you know from the book of Exodus, knowing what you know about God, what would you say to him? How would you counsel your brother? Again, the third thing the text shows us not to do is don't blame God. Don't be quick to blame God and see him in the wrong just because we don't understand the timeline. And so we'd probably say to Moses something like this, friend, friend, I know you're frustrated. I know this is difficult. And I know this maybe is hard to see now. If you could take a step back and see the big picture, you know that God is at work. So I want to encourage you to hang in there. Not saying it's easy, not saying to sugarcoat it, not saying to pretend things are fine. But know and trust that God's there. Lean on him. Help is coming. And so this text shows us when things get hard, don't look for the solution in the same place as the problem. Don't be quick to blame other people. And don't blame God. But trust him and know that he's at work. This has all been what not to do when things get hard. What should we do then? What are the things we should do? Just a brief word there. A few, I think, quick steps we can implement in our lives when we go through rough seasons to kind of counter some of the attitudes that we see in the text. And the first one is just be honest. Be honest about what you're feeling. So I'm not saying that the people in Egypt, the slaves in Egypt, should have said, hey, things are great. There's no problems here. Living in paradise. No, I'm good. No, any prayer requests? No, no, I'm good. Good. Family's good. Yeah, we're great. I'm not saying to just deny the pain, ignore the pain. No, I think we need to be honest with ourselves and with others about those rough patches and those seasons that we go through. It's important to be honest, share our hearts with people, let people pray for us, let people encourage us, tell someone about what we're going through. Second thing we can do is don't require the why. Again, the, the equation isn't always as simple as put good in, get good out. And so we should embrace the complexity of life and have enough humility to see that we're not always going to be able to sort everything out and understand exactly why. We might not know. You remember the story of Job? Remember when life just goes down the drain for Job? Loses everything, basically everyone around him except a couple of friends. And the friends, so he, he loses everything. And then his friends come to him and they're expert comforters. They're expert encouragers, and they say to him, hey, this is all your fault. Seriously, that's what they say. Because, because, they're using that simple equation. Hey, 
put good in, get good out. Put bad in, get bad out. And so things are bad for you right now, Job. So what did you do? What did you do to make this happen? What did you do to cause this? And God comes in at the end of the story and tells the friends, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You think there's a simple equation for life, and there's not. He doesn't give Job the why. Job never finds out the why. But he at least shatters that idea of the simple equation. So don't require the why. We might not get it. And third piece would be to trust God. Trust God. Easier said than done. But trust God. I don't understand this, Lord. I, I don't like this. I don't know why life looks like this for me. This is hard. This hurts. But Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you're good. I'm going to trust that you're still at work here. I'm going to trust your timing. I'm going to believe that in you, Jesus, I have hope. I have a future. You are good to me, even in this difficult season. So friends, hard times and loss are a, a reality for so many of us. If not now, then they will be soon. We all know what it's like to walk through those things. And so we've seen in this text some examples of what not to do. We've seen a few things here at the end of what we can do instead. I want us to watch a short video, which I think is just a couple minutes. It does a good job. It's Pastor John Piper kind of summarizing how we can, in a biblical, in a, in a healthy way, approach loss and grief and hard seasons in our life, how we can be honest, how we can weep, and how we can learn to trust God. So this is uh, kind of the last thing we're going to do before we sing, so take a look. Occasionally weep deeply over the life that you hoped would be, grieve the losses, feel the pain, then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life that he's given you. And the